there, I'm Dr. Amy King, otherwise known as Dr. Amy, and this podcast is the most important medicine. If you're a professional who wants to have a greater impact in the lives of children and families by building resilience, this podcast is for you. Join us to become a trauma-informed champion by nurturing connections through relational health to help kids and families thrive. Every time you join me, you'll hear practical information and leave with tangible tools you can use every day. Hey friends, I am delighted my friend Ann Brown has decided to join us for a second episode on the Most Important Medicine podcast. Let me introduce you to her. Um, Ann Brown has been a parenting educator and consultant for over 40 years, working with individuals, parents, couples, and groups. She taught her first parenting class when she was still pregnant with her first child, which means she really didn't know what raising kids was all about. But over the decades, she's raised two sons, taught classes at Merrillhurst Early Childhood Center in Oregon City, trained as a Waldorf teacher, created parenting support groups for the Hannah Anderson Family Foundation, and led workshops in both California and Oregon. And what I will also add is that Anne's background in pedagogy <laughs> is a degree in ethnomusicology. Before we tell that story though, Anne, what else do you want listeners to know about you or what you do in the world? I love to work one-on-one -on -one with people. I, it's almost impossible for me to not jump in when someone has a parenting question. I, I think that there's so much that we call parenting that is about just relationships and life. So that when I sit, when I teach parenting classes, I'm really, one of the things I'd love to do is go to the parking lot of Target on a Saturday and do what I call field research um, and just listen to the parents with their kids and just take in, like I pretend I've dropped my keys so I can just kind of listen in on stuff. And I don't say anything. I mean, no one's asking me to, to give them advice, but it is enormously fascinating to me how conversations go with parents and teachers and kids. Uh, I also have another career as a cantor um, in our local synagogue, and through that I also do pastoral work for the synagogue. So I call that, by the way, Walmart voyeurism. <laughs> <laughs> Just strolling through Walmart, watching all the things happen. Um, okay, so we have to tell this story, Anne. Uh, Anne and I've been friends and colleagues for as long as my daughter's been alive because, well, just, just after that, because my first entree into a mother and me group, a mommy and me group, which was moms and dads and grandparents and everybody was in Anne's twos classroom. And I was pregnant with my son, Jack, and Sophia was two years old and we came into Anne's class and Anne and I just completely hit it off. I mean, it was a, a friendship from the beginning. And anyway, I, you know, as I am probably, I don't know, academically pretentious in some ways, I was asking Anne about her background. And she said, that was actually the first question you asked me when I met you and <laughs> went around in group to introduce each other. And you said, uh, I'm Amy Stober. Uh, I have a PhD in child technology. And I said, what are your credentials? And I remember thinking, oh, this is not going to go well. <laughs> <laughs> so Anne tells me that her degree is is you know from berkeley right no santa cruz santa cruz in ethnomusicology and i just was like yeah that's funny okay never <laughs> and i moved on i moved on i moved on for decades i want our listeners to know like a decade or more went by 
all the time thinking my incredibly brilliant, talented friend had made up this degree in ethnomusicology because I'd never heard about it in my life. <laughs> and I'm sitting in a private practice session with a, a mom and a dis, and who is distraught, by the way, and her young son. And the reason she is distraught is because her son has decided to major in ethnomusicology. <laughs> And I, as the brilliant psychologist, say, there's no need to worry. It's not an actual degree. <laughs> to which the mom pulls out the, the course book and shows me that it is, in fact, what her son is majoring in. <laughs> and I had to call Anne that night and say, friend, I am sorry. I, I, I thought for sure this degree was made up. I did not believe you. And this whole time I thought you had this made up degree. And we, we had gone on at that point. We had our very sweet show, The Motherload, that, that aired at a local cable company. But the whole time I thought you had this made, made up degree. And I never knew that you didn't believe me. That <laughs> to me, I was, it, I was so shocked when you told me that all of these years, you thought that I made up a degree. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I was secretly judging you or just curious or like, because you're so wise. I mean, everything that you share with people is brilliant. I mean, so Anne and I have, we did this very sweet mother load together. We ran a parenting group in her living room together. I mean, it's just been such an honor. And so today I asked Anne to come and talk to us as we enter into December. And our theme is really focusing on what's the most important. And here we are as parents and professionals and people who work in kids' lives, we are just inundated with holiday messaging, right? Gift giving and trees and all of this commercialism. And so I, I, I went to my friend Anne with her degree in ethnomusicology and said, can we just talk about like kind of our top five questions that are constantly coming up about the holidays? So let's just start. I'm gonna just throw out the toughie right away, right? Okay. Um, all right. Do I tell my kids, if, parents, if you're listening right now to this podcast, you got kids in the car, you might just pause. You might just pause because we're going to talk about some hard holiday stuff. So just pause your recording. I'm going to give you a minute to do that. All right. I'm just going to go to this question. What do I tell my kids when they ask me if Santa's real? You know, first of all, I love as a Jew that I get to answer this question. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, yeah, we'll go to Anne. We'll ask Anne. Um, it all depends on who your child is and what you sense your child wants to know. That doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. So I always like to ask a question back when a child says, is Santa really real? To say, that's such an interesting question. Why did you ask? And that's very different than the question, what do you think? Mm -hmm. Because when a child is asking, is Santa real? They're... They, they first need to know what our, our reaction is. And what I want, when whenever you don't know what to say to somebody, I like to kind of re-ask the question they ask me. Mm -hmm. How interesting that you ask, why do you ask? Generally it will be because they heard someone else. Somebody right. else spilled the beans, well they said that that. So, in something that I like to call, go to the end of the fight first in your head before you say anything, even though this is not a fight, but go to the end of the conversation, I would ask myself, what do I want for my child right now at this stage? Do I want them to still have magic in their lives, even if they kind of intellectually know that it's not happening? 
Or is my child a little bit anxious and needs to know scientific answers because it will creep them out if they really think that somebody's coming into the house at night. Right. So it so much depends on who our child is and what we want for our child. And if you can, if you look at your child and you think, yeah, they're probably at the age where they're, they're getting a sense of there's some holes in that story, but they're having fun with it and they're not worried and they're not wringing their hands over it, then I would answer them, you know, I still believe that Santa comes. Or even say, I love the idea that Santa can come. There are many parents who say, but I don't want to lie to my children. My answer to that is, yes, but. We don't want to lie to our children about the real things. However, I believe there is a place for magic and wonder. Uh in yeah. a child's life. And if we are going to be so scientific that we're going to suck the fun out of every story because it doesn't line up, we're going to rob our kids of a lot of magic. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad. That, I'm, I'm just so glad that you said this because I feel like there's just these very short years of a child's life where the world feels possible and magical, right? And to hold some of that, to protect some of that for our youngest kids, I think is really an important part of growing up and protecting that world. And I also would say to parents and caregivers, like, you know the difference between when your kid's like a Santa real and they're just wanting reassurance from you versus like, no, really, tell me, right? Because they're really consternated. Mm -hmm. there, there's, we all need magic and wonder in our lives. And most of us understand that what we choose to see as magic or wonder probably isn't, but it still makes us feel good. And if we need it, we know that our children also need that. There's, um, there's, there's magic. I remember when my kids were little and I would slice an apple and not the, not the regular way, but the other way. And it made the uh, seeds oh, go star. Yeah. and the kids would say, oh, there's the moon and the stars. And I thought, that's so wonderful that slicing an apple can make them feel that. And, you know, they figured it out on their own that it's not the moon and the stars. I think that every ritual that contains a little bit of magic and a little bit of not being able to explain is meaningful for kids. I, probably every religion has rituals or something that has something that is like magic. And that keeps the people together, that keeps us telling the stories. It also models for our kids how they will then tell it to the kids who are younger. Mm -hmm. um, so while we're on that topic of ritual and magic, right? For parents and caregivers who might be wondering about, well, I'm not really religious. Should I be celebrating this holiday? Or I'm not Christian, right? I'm, do I celebrate Christmas? What, what say you about that? If you are a family, that has a religion and goes to church, goes to synagogue, goes to the mosque, goes wherever they go, it's easy, it's built in, and your community is there. And it's, it's a, a values-based community who will celebrate the rituals together. If you don't, you have to be a little more creative. And it doesn't mean that you have to live a life that is devoid of magic and devoid of rituals. You just have to be willing to be a little more creative to create them. And one of the ways that we can do that 
is by something that I think is very important anyway, which is create a family mission statement. And in a family mission statement, we begin with what's important to us. The parents write in the mission statement what they want for their children. What do we want our children to believe about the world? What do we want our children to have? The kids can add to the mission statement um, what's important to them. From that, we could come up with a ritual. So, oh, I love this so much. I love this. So, if I'm Christian, it's built in, right? Because we're talking about the birth of Christ and Christmas. But if I'm not, I might say something to my kids like, um, "We believe we give back to the world, right? Or we volunteer and do good things." And you could create a whole ritual during the holidays about that. Absolutely. First of all, Mother Nature gives us everything we need in the seasons. So when we're talking about the winter holidays, I like to think of it as how can we bring light into the darkness? Mm. And that is, you can bring it to your Christmas tree. Certainly we bring it with lighting candles at Hanukkah or, or Kwanzaa or anything that we're going to be doing. You distill it to the little, bringing light into the darkness. Mm. And then we talk about how can we bring light into the darkness for other people. Tried and true, is doing service for others. If you are someone who's looking to create rituals for your family or for your classroom, you can't go wrong starting at how do we help others. And that can be in any way possible. There, we can do something as simple as bake something for a neighbor down the street who's ill or who's old or who's alone. It can be anything larger, but to have a, to have a ritual, I believe, it has to be something that is of service to someone or includes something of service. I mean, you can have rituals that, yeah, we get the Christmas tree on this night and we do that and those are wonderful. But if you wanna add meaning and depth and purpose, you know, purpose is a word that I feel is lost these days with, with certainly with raising families is what is our sense of purpose and how do we bring purpose into our kids' lives? The holidays are a wonderful time to think about that. You know, I, my grandparents came from Eastern Europe. The purpose of their lives was to escape from the, from, um, the Cossacks, to get out of, of Ukraine, come to America for freedom, for religious freedom. Their purpose, they didn't spend a lot of time saying, how do we find purpose? My parents' generation, who was first generation in America, they knew that their purpose was to make their lives worth it, that their parents risked their lives to come. So it was education. For my generation, it was a little more vague. And for my kids' generation, where's the purpose? And since we are privileged, those of us who are privileged enough to have easy lives, we have to look deeper for the purpose. I believe that what we say, and for me, is our, my purpose is to help others and to bring light to the darkness. So there we start with a million things we can do. And, and, and you mentioned this in, in another episode, but I think it's good to underscore here because then we can just invite a conversation, right? Then we can just throw that out there. Our, our value is to give lightness to dark. Mm -hmm. What are ways we could do that as a family this holiday season? And kids have brilliant ideas. Oh, they, if we give them a chance, their hearts are so huge. They will come up with the most incredible things and they will let us know what they've noticed because when we ask them what do we see around us that could use a little love that could use a little what do we see in our neighborhood what do we see in our school what do we see anywhere they notice yeah who's sitting alone who's who and, needs something. 
Do you remember at Merrillhurst when there were the hanging stars, the giving stars for families? And, you know, Jack, who can be somewhat solemn at times, um, really was curious about those. And I was telling him, well, there's families that, you know, might not be able to have the means to get presents. And so there's these giving stars that are there. And should we take one? And he really struggled. And he, he didn't know if taking one meant that other kids wouldn't, would go without. He didn't know if, like, does that mean then these other families won't have? Like, how do you pick just one? And he was like four years old. And so we kind of talked about it. And he said, I think we should wait. And let's take all the ones that don't get taken. I would have never thought about that to your point, right? I would have, I would have just plunked out something that was easy for me, right? Like, oh, I have a four-year-old boy. I know what four-year-old boys like. I'm going to choose a four-year-old boy star. But he was like so thoughtful at the age of four. And I thought, good for you. Yes, let's wait. Mm -hmm. Let's see what's left over, you know, and what was left over, you know, was a 15-year-old girl who needed, you know, socks and hygiene products. And it was a totally different giving that he was able to take part in. <laughs> and what a great moment of insight it gave you into your child. Oh, yeah. You know, there is so much going on in our kids' heads that we don't know. And a lot of it we're not meant to know, but how wonderful when we get a glimpse of what they've been mulling around and how it comes out. And it allows us to really see them more in a, in a more holistic way of who they are. They're not just their behavior. They're also what's going on inside of them. Yeah. So, so while we're talking about gifts and gift giving, right. Um, this question comes up a lot and right. Like either these extravagant gifts that are expected at, at the holiday time, or maybe you have a relative or, you know, a good friend who wants to buy your kids, either extravagant gifts that you disagree with or gifts that, you are maybe outside of your value set, like, you know, they're going to buy your kid a brand new video game system and you don't agree with video games. Like, how do you handle those delicate conversations without seeming like you're not grateful or thankful? Well, I think there's a difference between excess and against my values that my values will inform how we will do gifts uh, with my with my kids. If grandma or the neighbors want to spend a lot of money, get really expensive gifts, I look at my kids and I say, aren't you lucky? Mm -hmm. You have grandparents or neighbors or an aunt. However, if it's something that I'm that I'm against, let's say, um, as you said, a video game, it's a violent video game, or for some families, a toy gun, or right. for, for other things, then depending on the age of the child, if you know, by the time a child is seven or eight, I need to have a conversation with them about it. I can't just hide it and pretend it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to bring my child into that conversation by saying, I'm a little torn. Mm -hmm. I, I love what they, that they wanted to get you a gift, but I am, those video games, I don't think they have the right values. I don't like that they are about killing or hurting or whatever. Once we've worked that through, then we get to come to our conclusion, which might be, so I want to put it away for a year and see if we all figure if we if I feel differently after a year or I'll let you play it, but I want to be there and I want to watch. I want to learn more about it. The, the answer almost doesn't matter as much as the fact that we have validated for the child. This is confusing. I don't know what to do. It's the same answer I like giving kids when they 
observe something that is disturbing, whether someone bullying or that, like a child who's been raised in a family that says we never have gunplay. And all of a sudden at, at Christmas, the neighbor gives them a gun. They're very confused and they need us as the parent to validate this is confusing because I think it's healthy to just say, no, no, throw it away because you've, you haven't given your kid an answer, but just say, this is very confusing. Well, and I just, I love that you're so intentional about saying it out loud, letting your child see your confusion, that it might go against a value or an age gap or whatever the case may be. And you're just letting them see you think out loud, like, hmm, you know, we're not big. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's so Amy, because I think what happens is when our kids say something or experience something that we weren't prepared for, our first instinct is to manage it. Like, how do I pat that down? And that's always more confusing for the child. So I think about that Xbox, right? And your your really well-intentioned brother, cousin, uncle, whoever gives this kid this Xbox and, and you're not a big fan of your kid having video games at all yet. And they open the, and it's like, ah, right? Like they, they just got the, the system of the century. And then you just say, nope, I'm going to take it away. You don't get to have that, right? That's That doesn't give your child any kind of, I don't know, honor, credibility, and having a conversation about it. Well, plus it can make your child question who the giver is. Mm. Like, why did, why did uncle so-and-so give me something that my parents don't believe in? All of the nuance in the world needs to be explained to kids, not just answered or managed by them. Mm-hmm. And so every time we can bring a child into the why, why are you saying yes? Why are you saying no? Why don't you have an answer for me yet? Why can't you, why, why can't you help me with my urgency? The answer is, I want to give this all the thought because I'm actually a little confused. It is amazing in our interaction with our kids how a child can go from urgent. Why not? Why not? Why can't I? When we say, because I actually am trying to figure out what to do, their whole energy changes. We are now on the same side. We have positioned ourselves as a partner with our child in figuring out what to do instead of positioning ourselves as an antagonist. Um, And, you know, generally, even when we say yes or no, we have to backtrack anyway because our kids are going to find loopholes in what we say. (laughs) So we may as well get it. We may as well be honest at the beginning. Let me figure this out. I don't know yet. Say that again, Anne. I think that's so important for parents and professionals who work with kids. Instead of being an antagonist, we want them to be what? We want to position ourselves on the same side with our with the child, which is let's figure this out. Mm. When we can, when something happens and right away we feel no and our child feels yes. It's way too easy to dig our heels in and keep repeating why we're saying no, because all kids know is to keep repeating why they're saying yes. And the more we say no, 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 the more they're going to dig their heels in. There's something that I like to call what's the emotional message in what our child is telling us. And when a child is saying, why not? Why can't I go? Why can't I play with that? The emotional message is explain to me this feeling that I have that I'm so frustrated and I feel betrayed because you don't you don't really understand what I'm trying to say. And when we can answer them by saying, I hear you, I hear what you're saying. I'm trying to figure out what is the best thing right now for someone your age and how do we work this out? All of a sudden we have 
in a very healthy, non-manipulative way, manipulated our children into being on the same team, which is how do we figure this out? Same I, you know, how do we figure it out? Not who's right, who's wrong. I love this so much, even outside the holidays, right? I, I hope the listeners are hearing you give them like a game plan template for lots of big, hard conversations that come up because it could be video games. It could be cell phones. It could be drugs. It could be sex. It could be driving it, right? Whatever you're talking about. If you say, I'm not going to be the naysayer, the antagonist, instead, I'm going to align with you and say, let's think about it together. That's, that's right. incredible. Even if we know in our heart, kind of what our answer is going to be at the end, we still owe it to our children to bring them into the process. Mm -hmm. Even young kids, that a three-year-old will study your face if you say, I don't know the answer yet. Let's talk about what the different ideas can be. We have immediately changed from this against each other to, yeah, let's, let's see, let's come up with some ideas. And they might not be happy. I mean, you know, no kid's gonna go, great, thanks for saying no. Um, but there's going to be a very different sense of closure and peace that you understand why it didn't happen, even if you're unhappy that it did. I love that. I love it. It's so brilliant. Um, does that come with the ethnomusicology package? <laughs> that was in my second year. I love <laughs> okay. Um, uh, last question around this, which is, um, I don't know, I, I was born in 1975 for people that are listening. And so we got the Sears Roebuck catalog and it was like this thick. And I did not grow up with a lot of money, but I dog-eared so many pages. I wanted everything, everything, right? I want this. And I, so can we just talk about the I wants for Christmas and, and how you, you know, of course kids want a lot of things. And then there's kids with a lot of means, kids that don't have as many means. Like how do you help parents navigate that? Well, I like to start with the V word, the other V word, values. Not, not that one and not the other one, which is validation. Uh, values are everything. Values will inform everything we ever need to say to our children if we can remember what our values are. So if one of our values is we do not believe in conspicuous consumption, we do not believe that more is always better, that uh, that we we don't believe that replacing something when we already have something is necessary that is very different than it's not okay to want it i believe that we have to go to the other v word validate we have to validate for the kids that of course you want it who wouldn't want it but what's the next step of wanting is but i'm choosing not to buy it because i don't need it Sometimes, I would say most of the time, as parents, we are afraid to give that answer to our kids because we just know what's coming next. But why not? But why not? But why not? However, it's the best answer in the world is because I choose to not need it. I, I see that I have it and I choose to not buy things I don't need. They will not be happy with it, but it's much better than the answer that we usually give, which is that's too expensive or I don't have the money. That is something that every parent it would it would be help, it would help every parent to put this as a post-it on this on their mirror. If you tell a child that you're not going to buy something because it's too expensive, the message you're telling them is if we had lots of money, we'd buy everything we wanted. And that's not a value. Mm -hmm. So the value has to shine through the circumstance that 
first of all, even three-year-olds will say, well, you have a credit card. If you show them an empty wallet, I don't have any money, like, well, then go to the bank. So you're going to get caught in a lie anyway. You may as well go to the truth at the beginning and say, I do have the money. We could afford it because, you know, a seven-year-old will say, but we can afford it. You say, you're right, we can. Daddy and I, mommy and I, I am choosing to not spend my money on things that I don't feel we need. Mm -hmm. And then I want to add one more thing to that. We have to model it in our own lives. Oh. We sometimes forget that we should not hold ourselves up as the paragon of doing everything right because our kids will lose faith in themselves. So what I used to like to do with my kids when they were young is we I would look at catalogs or we go places and I would say out loud, oh, I love that chair. Oh, I love that chair. That chair is going to look so good in the living room. And the kids would say, yeah, it would. And I'd say, but you know what? I don't need another chair. I mm. want a chair. I don't need it. So I'm going to walk away. For my kids, that was so much more powerful than any lecture I would ever give them about conspicuous consumption. Mm. That I need to let them know that it's normal to want. And they should never feel shame for wanting. But they should feel proud that once they have identified that they want to then override it with their values by saying, but that's not something that I need. I love that. And, you know, one thing that you gifted me a statement long ago was we have enough. Yeah, we have enough. Right. And and, you know, could we get 27 pairs of jeans instead of 12 pairs of jeans or five pairs of jeans? We could, but we have enough. You have you have enough. Right. And I think that's that's values as well. Right. And, and when I go through Target, there's lots of stuff I would like to have at Target. I want lots of things at Target. And it's important to model to our kids why we purchase, when we purchase, where that comes from. And, and I don't think most adults think that through. So I want to go back to something you had said in our previous episode, which is, before you have these hard conversations with kids, you better be really clear about your values first because kids are brilliant and they're going to read through anything that you say, right? Um, you know, I, when we got our daughter a car, um, could we have afforded a nicer, newer, shinier car? Yes. Did we? No. Because our value was that you drive a used car that's good enough to get you around and safe enough that we don't worry about you. That was our standard, right? And we had the luxury of being able to then look at cars from there. But we were really clear, first of all, what are we looking for and why? If, if we would ask young kids, why don't we buy certain things? I would imagine their answer is always because we don't have the money or it's too expensive because that's the answer we give them all the time. doesn't matter how much money we actually have. And we need to really clarify that and let them know, no, it's actually because uh, we're choosing not to spend our money on that. Right. We need to model for our children that we also want, but we also choose not to do it. And I think that, again, we are, we've been told that as parents and teachers, we should always be role models for the highest loftiest ideals. And I'm not against that. I just think that if we don't temper that, with realistic when we fall, when we fail, when we want, when we're disappointed, that kids are gonna feel that the world owes them if they did the right thing, they should get the right thing. And so to be able to, for me to walk away and say to my young kids, I'm still thinking about that chair. 
and that would <laughs> sure look good in the living room. It's hard for me to let go. I, I got to think of other things so I can get my mind off of it. That's teaching them that it's normal to want and to want more. You know, sometimes when we take our young kids into a coffee shop, let's say we go into Starbucks with a young kid, really young kid, and we order our coffee and we say, I want a non-fat mocha latte with a quarter inch of foam and da 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 da, da. And our kids are listening and that's, they're used to us saying that. And the barista hands us the coffee, but it has an eighth inch of foam. And we say very nicely, very nicely to the barista, could you give me a little more foam? And the barista says, of course. There's two things happening there. On one level, we deserve to have as much foam as we want. We're being very kind and we, we work hard for the money, but our little three-year-old is getting the message that every cup of coffee should be exactly the way we want it. Mm. And if it's not, we should nicely ask for it to be different. That's a very dangerous precedent to be setting for our kids in this world because it flies against, I work hard for my money, I deserve to get what I want, which is also true. But I think that we have to be much more aware of the message that's going to our children, which is, I deserve to get everything the way I want it to be. Mm -hmm. Instead of, I'll drink, instead of, instead of what we should do is say to our kids, you know, it's a little less foam than I, or is it more foam? See, I was a music major. I don't know. <laughs> less, less foam. <laughs> that it, it's a little less foam than I wanted, but it's good enough. Yeah. It's the words, it's good enough have to be said to our kids at least three times a day about something meaningful. Well, because I think about other people who may be listening who genuinely don't have a lot. Right. And so I want to offer to those of you, because I, I grew up and many people who know me know this, that we did not have a ton of money when I was growing up. And so if we didn't have values as a family, if we didn't have a, a greater purpose around the holidays, it would have felt like some scarcity at times. And so I also want to offer listeners that right, that you don't have to have an abundance and still have meaning during the holidays. There's still a lot of messaging that can occur, which is why I really appreciate you going back to it being about values in your family mission statement. Um, okay, I have just one last ask um, that I didn't forewarn you about, but I'm starting a club and it's called um, Get Rid of the Elf on the Shelf Club um, because it creates so much parental angst. <laughs> Yes. And I just want to know if you'd like to be a member of my club, no more elves on the shelves, because I, I really think it's creating so much anxiety in moms and dads and caregivers, whoever you are, to move this stupid little guy every night and, and go on Pinterest and find him like swimming in marshmallows. I mean, if that's your thing, that's great. But like when our dog got a hold of our elf, Anne, and gave it a lobotomy, and I had to <laughs> try to like fix it. I realized like I can't do, I cannot be a working mom and manage the holidays and move this stupid elf for every night for 24 days. So anyway. And I'm yes, I want to join. I want to say two things. One is there is now something that's called the mensch on a bench. Mensch is the Yiddish, is the Jewish word for a person. And it's like, we need to get rid of all of them. First of all, to be, to, to not be funny about it. I don't want kids to do the right thing because somebody's watching. I want to raise kids who do the right thing because it's the right thing, even if nobody's watching. And so it's so easy to overuse this mench on a bench or an elf on the shelf by, it, not only is it a little bit creepy to me that somebody's watching, but it 
is the it's not the the values I have. The values I have is what matters is what you do when nobody's watching, and the the choices that you make for yourself. So for me, I'm I will join your your group and wear the band <laughs> because I just I'm against it. Except for that those one of those pictures of the elf pooping Hershey's chocolate kisses. <laughs> and I think that everyone should have an elf just pooping Hershey's chocolate kisses. <laughs> okay, the one, the one uh, sidebar. Okay, as we wrap up, Anne, um, tell me what's one thing you think parents and caregivers get wrong about the holidays? I think that what they get wrong is if they are not religious or not comfortable with religion, then they should not celebrate anything. Mm -hmm. Instead of coming up with something that has to do with the season or whatever, I hear a lot of parents saying, well, I'm not religious, I really am not comfortable, so we don't do much. Kids need something. I, I shouldn't say kids deserve something that is creative and ritual that comes every year and they, they can count on that has only to do with what, whether it's just go out and pick leaves and, and, and make a, a display of leaves. So I think that parents think they should do nothing if they don't know what to do religious wise. Oh, I love that. Um, I ask all of my guests, what's one thing that's bringing you joy right now, large or small? I'm not pandering, but this talking to you. Mm. <laughs> To see you again, we haven't seen each other uh, in person for a really long time, and you are someone who is so special to me, and we have always energized each other when we talk about these things. Um, this has been a wonderful joy for me to be anticipating this and to have this conversation with you. This is the Motherload 2.0. <laughs> on the podcast. And I mean, my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> Same, soft pants, soft pants. Um, last question. It's 11 o'clock at night and you have a food craving. What's your special indulgence that you reach for? Oh. Well, this week it would be different because I cracked a molar five days ago and because of the, of the Thanksgiving weekend, I can't get to the dentist till tomorrow. So for me, it would be anything mushy. Uh, <laughs> and not cold, tepid and mushy is what I would go for now. But generally, I'm not a sugar person, but I'm a, I'm a carb salt person. So it would probably be if there's any kind of chips in the house. Okay, okay. Um, I'm gonna try to get through this wrap up without crying. But what I will say um, is I just love you and appreciate you and look up to you. And when you mentioned you know, bringing light into darkness. You are that, Anne, for so many people. I know for me, during some of the hardest parts of parenting, when my kids were just little and I thought I was drowning, and, you know, in our pre-recording, when you said you were proud of the work that I was doing, you just, you're light. And despite all of the difficulties that are happening in our world right now, you bring light to your synagogue, you bring light to parents, you bring light and messages. So thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate you. Thank you. And I would like to just take a second to give an example to the listeners that not only are you a gift at large to people, but I want to share with them one day that will be in my heart forever. I was on the phone with you. You were driving home from work and I was crying because I was worried about something with my kid. 
and we talked all the way that you were driving back from Clackamas and I cried and cried and talked and at one point I said hold on hold on Amy someone's at the door and it was I'm gonna cry when I say this it was you and you had driven from your office straight to my house because I was upset about my kid and I thought to myself when when I see these huge things you're doing now and that I'm so proud of and I love so much it has not taken away from you the small things that you do that it's completely genuine on the large and the small mm. I'll drive to you just let me know and I'm gonna go open a bag of chips <laughs> <laughs> all right love you friend love you Amy well that's it friends if you like what you're hearing here please download my free resource called 10 Guiding Principles to Nurture Connection and Help Children and Families Thrive. This is the most important medicine. Keep listening to other people's stories and let them transform you. And keep sharing yours because your humanity will heal others. Bye for now.